lived in for the last few weeks. Each Sunday is a standalone message, but it does fit with what we're, we're talking about. So, so far, we talked about our spiritual health a number of weeks ago, physical health, mental health, emotional health. And for the next three weeks, we're, we're kind of turning a corner here. The last three weeks of the series, we're going to look at the practical applications of, of all of those things that we're looking to change and transform in our lives. Like, how does this come, become real in my life? And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the facing the fears that ruin relationships. There are all kinds of fears that can ruin relationships. Fears of betrayal, fears of intimacy. You know, will she make me happy? Will he make me happy? All kinds of fears. Will I be bored with this person? If I marry this one, is he going to hold me back? Is she going to hold me back? Will I let him down? Fear of losing one's freedom in a relationship. Fear of disappointment. Fear of... Maybe I'm going to get hurt. There are so many fears that can interfere with our relationships and actually ruin relationships. And here's the problem. We're broken people living in a broken world, right? I mean, it really doesn't take much to look outside and figure out it's broken. And and if you think about that, we are dysfunctional. And that dysfunction brings a certain level of fear into our relationships. So this morning we're going to talk about how to overcome those fears that ruin relationships. Now our scripture, which is right in your outline, there is the quintessential fear-driven crazy moment when all of this brokenness began, the fall of mankind, humankind. Now, there are lots of relationships. You know, I was thinking about this. We could look at Romeo and Juliet. You know, that was a relationship that was filled with fear. Samson and Delilah, Kim Kardashian and Hollywood. And I mean, there are so many. But this one in Genesis chapter 3 is the biggest breakup story of all time. Now, if you're reading along, like I say, it's right there in the outline. Let me give you just a little bit of background. And most of us know this story. God created everything. He created it perfect. He created Adam. He created Eve. Gave them a perfect place to go and live. Everything was good. And we don't know, there's no timeline in the Bible of when chapter 3 actually takes place. Could be a million years, could be two million years, could be two weeks. We we have no clue. But Adam and Eve are living in paradise. And and it's all good. And then Satan comes along and he starts to to weave something in there. He starts to, to, to put questions there. And he he goes to Eve and he says, God's holding out on you. He's keeping the best from you. Because they were told you can eat of all the trees in the garden. There's just one that you can't eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and really, there's no magic in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's just the only way that you can discover right and wrong is if you do wrong. Well, up to this point, there had been no wrong, only right. So the fear that Eve is dealing with at this point is the fear of missing out on something. So it starts in verse 6 in chapter 3. I'm re- reading a new living translation. It says, The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and it looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. 
So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? She said, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles, and you, though you will eat of its, it will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Paradise lost. Now there's a lot of symbolism in that, and I'm not going to get into the depths of it. But typically, there, there's not a, a single event that causes relational breakdowns. Often it, it's a series of events. And then there's a, a sort of a chain reaction spurred by relational feels that, that feel, feelings that multiply, fears that multiply the problem. And that's what we see here. There are things that we can learn from this little passage of Scripture that we can apply to our lives today to help us face those fears that hurt our relationships and, and overcome them. Now, number one, this is right in your outline, how our fears ruin relationships. Number one, my fear of exposure makes me distant. Verse nine says, Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Now, any time that you read God asking a question, in the Bible, or if he ever asks a question of you, you feel that God is asking a question. It's not because he doesn't know. It's a rhetorical thing. He was trying to bring Adam to a point of recognition, of realization. You're hiding from me, Adam. Adam, did you know that? So he's leading. Adam knew that he had messed up big time. Up until this point, paradise, everything's good. No reason to hide from God. But now he's messed up and his very first reaction, I need to hide. I need to go hide. I need to distance myself from the focal point of my discomfort. What was the focal point of his discomfort? God. I'm going to run and hide. You know, I, I think it's funny. I look at my grandkids sometimes and, you know, many of you have children. How they get to a certain age, maybe around two, where... When they do something wrong and they know that it's wrong, they often run and hide. And you're looking for them and they'll be peeking out behind the sofa because they're looking for you too and they've got big old eyes. And What are you hiding for? Nothing. 
But you know, they did something because something inside of them said, I better go hide. I'm, I'm feeling shame. I know I've done something wrong. The dog, the puppies, just the same. You come home from work and the puppies got into the trash. You walk in the door, there's trash everywhere. Where's the dog? Hiding. It knows. We do that. As adults, we might not physically hide, but we certainly emotionally hide. When we mess up in a relationship, we distance ourselves. Sometimes we hide behind our work. Sometimes we hide behind our bad habits. Sometimes we hide behind our hobbies, our interests. We become emotionally distant. That's why we don't want to make the phone call or have the conversation. It's why we engage in small talk instead of dealing with the feeling of what you're dealing with. You messed up. Now you feel bad. And here's the thought pattern. I feel bad about this. And when I see you, it makes me feel worse. So I'm going to distance myself from you. You didn't do anything, but there's something going on in me. I'm going to hide. And the problem gets compounded. It works both ways. You did something bad to me. I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to distance myself from you. I'm afraid of how I feel, so I'm going to withdraw. Spiritually, when we mess up, typically we withdraw from God, right? You know, you do something wrong that you know is wrong. You don't typically write the prayer. There's a period of time where it's like, "Mm, I feel shame, and I hide. Look how this goes downhill. Verse 7a, it says, they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So there was shame. So they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves up. I want to hide. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. You've got this downward slide of the relationship. So number one, my fear of exposure makes me distant. I feel shame. Number two, my fear of disapproval makes me defensive. All right, here we go. It's the shame and blame game. And most of us have played this game. I mess up. I don't feel good about it. I know it doesn't look good on me. And sadly, here's the thing, I know it doesn't look good on me and I feel worse about how I look than what it is that I've done. So I need to alleviate some of the guilt. So I'm going to pass the blame on. Not my fault. If you hadn't have done, if you didn't do this, if you didn't do that, I wouldn't have done that. Not my fault, your fault. Again, it goes downhill. It says in verse 11, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Again, it's a rhetorical question. So Adam sidesteps it. (laughs) I love this. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. You know, can you just think about this conversation? So Adam's messed up. God calls him out on it. What have you done? If you hadn't made paradise... And given me this beautiful woman to share paradise with. If you hadn't have done that, we would not have been in this mess right now. You should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> Everyone's being defensive. So then he goes to Eve. And Eve says, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. It's not my fault, God. His fault. Not me. I didn't do anything wrong. Now, all of those things are true. There's no lies there. They're all factual, but the blame game doesn't get you where you want to go. 
Everyone's being dis- defensive. Well, if you hadn't have, if you hadn't have. This is typical abusive behavior. You know, you, 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 gosh, you, you hear of those situations where you've got a man who's abusive to his wife or, or his, his partner. And it's always the same. Well, if she hadn't have, if she didn't talk like that, if she didn't do those things, I wouldn't have done those things. It's her fault. I mess up, so I distance myself and I hide. But as often the case, you can't hide forever. So the issue's confronted. Now, how I feel about how I am perceived, disapproval, is a greater issue to me than what I did, sadly. And I'm going to defend that. I go into defensive mode. I, just, I, I justify my actions. Number three. My fear of losing control makes me demanding. Ouch. I hate this because as I'm reading through this, it's like, these things are all my wife. Or, or one of us. I can't remember which one now. My fear of losing control makes me demanding. To gain control of the situation, we start to make demands. We become controlling. Well, in future, you had better not. You need to change your behavior. Then we're not going to get into this situation again. There's a really interesting little statement in all of this scripture. God begins to lay out for them the consequences of their behavior. And at the end of verse 16, there's, there's, there's this really interesting one. He's talking to Eve, and he says, You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. There's going to be struggle in your relationship. She will seek to control his behavior, and he will try and dominate her. Uh, I see that all the time in relationships. She, she's always trying to tell me what to do. I don't know why she tells me what to do. He never listens to me. He's, you see it all the time. It's interesting, isn't it? It comes all the way back here. So we've got fear of exposure, fear of disapproval, fear of losing control. These are all fears that can destroy relationships. Now, that's just three. We could stay here for a couple of hours and go through 10, 20, 30 of these, but we're going to stick with three. And I think most people know that there are fears that, that ruin relationships. And it's, and it's enough to bring the point. And the point is, our relational fears hurt our relationships. Now, you might want to take a moment, while I'm jabbering away up here, to just think through this for yourself. What relational fear... Have you struggled with? What relational fear has caused harm in your relationships? How has it harmed you? How has it harmed other people? And then on the flip side, how have those relational fears of those you are close to hurt your relationship with them? The stuff that they bring into the relationship. You know, when I do premarital counseling, I always say, you know, when when two people get together, It's like you've got this stew of your life, your experiences, your upbringing, who you are, and this person's got theirs, and now we're going to put all of this stuff together and make one big us stew with all of our stuff in there. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the ugly stuff. 
what my dad said when I was young, what my mom did, it all gets in this pot and we're going to make this and try and make this work. And we bring these relational fears into our relationships. Both of us do. You know, I remember a time for Sandra and I, it's hard to tell stories because I know my sisters are watching online (laughs) over in England. But I remember when Sandra and I first started dating, and and I'm still very much in love with my wife. (laughs) I was very insecure, very insecure in my relationship with her, in, in my relationships really. And, and, the, and the, the heart of that insecurity was my mom and dad's relationship. So it was a little bit stormy at times. And my mom all the time would say, I'm done with him. I'm divorcing him. I'm sick of him. I'm, ga- I'm going to get out of here. She never ever did it, but she would say it all the time. I'm done with him. I'm going to divorce him. And, and you don't know sometimes how much that stuff affects your family. Now, I don't know that it affected my sisters. They've never said anything about it. But I do remember that when I got into my relationship with Sandra, when we started getting serious, that I just had this ongoing doubt about the strength of this relationship, whether she would love me that much, whether I, I was worthy of her love. Maybe we'll be in here two years and And she's going to up and leave. And and I carried that in. Now, here's what happens. When you take those relational fears, the other person reacts to that. She realizes something's not right here. Because something's wrong. And, And then they bring in their relational fears, whatever it might be. And for the first few years of our marriage, it was okay for the first few years. But about four or five years in, these things start to surface. And one feeds on the other, and the other feeds, and, and, and you start this downward spiral. The one thing that saved, I believe, the thing that saved our marriage is God. It, that was about the time when we started our relationship with God, and, and our relationship started struggling after we started our relationship with God, but He brought us through it. But these things feed, they feed on one another. So what is the antidote to relational fears? Well, it's a real simple one. We must learn to live in God's love. Learn to live in God's love. And we're going to expand on this. I love 1 John 4.18. It says, where God's love is, there is no fear. Because God's perfect love drives out fear. I find over and over with this spiritual journey that God has us on, sometimes the answers to the issues are so simple that they kind of beg believing. It's like, no, it's got to be more complicated than that. It's got to be worse than that. You know, God, God says, you want eternal life? You want to spend eternity with me? It's not about being good. It's not about any of that stuff. Just say sorry. I'll forgive you. No, it's got to be more to it than that, God. You want to heal your relationships? Get God's love in your life. So we've got to find something. If you've got relational fears, you've got to find something that will drive those fears out. Where God's love is, there is no fear because God's perfect love drives out fear. God's perfect love 
Not a love that's based in any kind of selfishness, self-centeredness. It's pure, unconditional. But the verse continues. It is punishment that makes a person fear. Now, to understand that, you've got to understand what that word punishment means. It means fear of the negative consequences. So love overcomes fear. You think about this. Anybody ever seen a, a fire, a house burning? It's kind of scary, isn't it? I've seen a few. Not been involved. Just seen a few. Who's the person that wants to run back in the house? Mom, if there's a kid in there. Husband, if the wife's in there. Why do they want to run back in the house? Because love overcomes fear. I got something I love so much. I'm, I'm going to go in there and rescue. And you got the fireman holding them back. No, no, we'll do it. We'll do it. Love overcomes fear. I love this verse in the, in the contemporary English version. It says, a real love for others will chase those worries away. The thought of being punished is what makes us afraid. It shows that we have not really learned to love. The thought of the negative consequences of real love. How many times have you been afraid to tell the truth because of the consequences? Ooh, I just, I want to save myself from that. How many times have you been afraid to be yourself because of the consequences? How many times have you been afraid to say what's on your mind because of the consequences? What other people might think, what other people might say. Now, how different would those situations be if you believe that the person or the people to whom you're speaking or to whom you're reacting loved you perfectly? It would change, wouldn't it? You wouldn't care about sharing what's on your mind. You wouldn't care about saying what, what needs to be said. And if you've messed up, if you know they love you perfectly, it's, hey man, I, I'm so sorry, I was, I was stupid, I did this. And it flip-flops. How different would our relationships be if we loved perfectly? So how do we learn to live in God's love? Well, you've got to do it daily. If you want to get good at something, you've got to practice it, right? The more you practice, you like sports, you know, the more you practice, the better you get, right? You've got to do it daily. If you want to get transformed real in your life, those things that God is, is talking to you about, you have to do them daily. So I want to make this, this very personal. Learning to live in God's love is an everyday practice, and I've got three of them for you, all right? Number one, every day surrender my heart to God. Every day surrender my heart to God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. So surrendering your heart is a daily thing. It's not an event. Transformation is not an event. It's a daily thing that we keep doing. Relationships can be tricky, can't they? Do you think she's pretty? What do you say? Sure, you can go golfing with your friends. I don't mind, really. Do you remember our first anniversary Look back at this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. He will direct you as you go through this minefield, which a relationship can be sometime. To go his way, it means you've got to completely trust him. It means to go his way, even when it doesn't make sense to you, or it's not the world's way, or the popular way. If in everything you do, you seek him first, he will direct your paths. He will show you how to navigate these difficult relationships. He is on your side. So step one of learning to live in God's love, every day surrender my heart to God. Number two, every day remember the way God loves me. I love the songs that we had today, Randy. Perfect. Every day remember the way God loves me. Now there's two key words here. Way and me. It's not every day remember that God loves me. It's every day remember the way God loves me. And it's me. It's personal. For God so loved the world. True. But we're talking about personal this morning. So to make this, the next four blanks are an I'm. Okay? It's personal. Now, I'm going to go through these quick. So if you've got your pen, shift the gear stick into, shift it up one, because we're, we're, we're going to go quick. All right? Number one. I'm completely accepted. I am completely accepted. Titus 3, 7, Jesus treated us much better than we deserve. He made us acceptable to God and gave us the hope of eternal life. You are acceptable to God. You. Now, I want to put some wheels on this, all right? I hate to do this, but I'm going to. Think about the most obnoxious, shameful thing that you've ever done. Just take a second. Now, most of us have got it. Some are making a list. How does that make you feel? You don't have to answer out loud. How does that make you feel? Do you feel like you deserve God's love? Probably not. But you have it. Now, here's the wonderful thing. Not only do you have his love, But through Jesus, you are acceptable to God. It's not that Jesus says, he's not ashamed of you. It's not that he says, I I love you even though. I love you regardless of. He says, I love you. He's not loving you in spite of. He accepts you completely. Now, here's why he accepts you. God accepts you. Because you had the smarts to accept his son. It's circular. He says, you know, I loved my son so much. I sent my son down there to to die on the cross for your sins. And you didn't reject him. You said, yes, you accepted his son. He said, you accept my son. I accept you. You are acceptable in my sight. Thank you for not rejecting my son and all that he did. Number two, I'm unconditionally loved. Isaiah 54.10 says, The mountains and hills may crumble, but my love for you will never end. I will keep forever my promise of peace. So says the Lord who loves you. 
You are unconditionally loved. God says, even if everything else in all creation crumbles away, my love for you will not crumble away. That's how much I love you. It will never fail. Not ever. Now, listen up. This is important. If we're going to face the fears that ruin our relationships, we've got to get our heads around what real love is. And God's love is real. It's perfect. It's complete. It's unconditional. And it's directed at you and me. And here's the thing about God. It doesn't matter what you think. And it doesn't matter what you feel. His love is still real. doesn't matter whether you think you're worthy of his love. His love is real. He accepts you and he loves you. Number three, I am totally forgiven. Romans 8, 1 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. God gives you absolute forgiveness for everything and anything you have ever done. 100% signed, sealed, delivered if you belong to Christ. That's the caveat, which leads to number four. I'm considered extremely valuable. First Corinthians 12 says, God paid a high price for you. You know, I've I've shared this many times over the years. I'm going to share it one more time. How much is something worth? It's worth what you'll pay for it, right? This person might think it's worth this much. This person thinks it's worth that much. This person thinks it's worth that much. You get a house on the market. You put it out there to bid, right? You want to get the highest bidder. And different people think that it's worth different amounts. How much are you worth? I I think about this. I think about my grandkids. I think about my kids. I would give my life for them. I wouldn't have to think twice about it. I can't think of anything that I would give my son's life for. There's nothing that I can think of that is that valuable to me that I would give my son's life for. That's how valuable you are. That's how valuable I am. God said, I'm giving my son's life for you. That is of high value, isn't it? Priceless. Absolutely priceless. And what does that mean? What does that mean that, that he gives his son's life for us? Well, it's simply the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. I talked about it just now. I remember before I was a Christian and uh, thinking that Christians all believed that if you were good, you got to heaven, and if you're bad, you go to hell. That simple. A lot of Christians still think that way. Or a lot of people still think that way. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches quite simply, you cannot be good enough to get into heaven. It says, if you want to be good enough to get into heaven, then be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And he's not grading on a curve. And I always use the cookie illustration. So I use the cookie illustration again. No cookie illustration. I've got to use the cookie illustration. Imagine you're baking some cookies. Best chocolate chips in all the world. 
best ingredients in all the world. And I go out to the yard and I take a spoonful of dog poop. And I dump it in the cookie mix. Stir it up. And cook those cookies. Bake those cookies. Would you eat one? It's got all the best ingredients. 99%, 99.9% good. That's exactly what it's like for, for us when we present ourselves to God. We may have been good all of our lives, but that one little bit of bad spoils the whole thing. So this is why God doesn't judge us in that way. It doesn't matter if you're a little bit good or really, really good. We like justice, don't we? We want the bad guy to get what he deserves. But that's not the way God looks at it. He says, if you ask my son for forgiveness of sin, whether it's a little tiny spoonful of dog poop or the whole sewage farm, he wipes it clean. You are forgiven. You are that valuable. You are that loved. I'm willing to start over. I'll wipe you clean. You get a brand new life. It's so simple. All it is is Jesus Christ. I believe you came down here. I believe you died on the cross for me. Thank you for paying for my sins. Please forgive me. Come on into my life. I want to go your way from here on. That simple. God paid a high price for you. Number three on here, every day offer the same love to others. Romans 15, 7 says, Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. You know, I was talking to a couple about this yesterday. When we begin to get our heads around what it means to be Christian, and we let God's love invade our lives and we start to live in God's love, it's very attractive. It's really attractive to people. You know, the, the, the world, when they think about Christians, the culture, they have this image of Christianity being narrow, judgmental. It's kind of like an exclusive club that's comprised of uptight, self-righteous, judgmental, hypocritical, harsh people. And that image has been thrown out a lot in the last few years of, of Christians being that way. But real Christianity is not like that. Most of the Christians I know are very attractive. They've got God's... I mean, we're all broken, right? We're not perfect. But they're seeking to do what God calls them to do. They're seeking to live in God's love. And that is attractive to people. People see that at work. They see that... Your, your neighbors, and, and, and they oh, what I don't know what you got, but I want some of that. It looks good. Christ said, I didn't come to judge. I came to show you the way, the way of love. One of the last things that he shared with his followers, John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. What, what does that mean? It means that if we allow Christ into our lives and he begins to kind of chisel away all those ugly bits and we allow his perfect love to, to drive out relational fears, we begin to accept those around us and all their fears and all their shortcomings and we become attractive. It's like, I want to hang out with that person. 
I like that person. They make me feel good. Go back to those four bullet points. I'm completely accepted. I'm unconditionally loved. I'm totally forgiven. I'm considered extremely valuable. If we were to consider others that way, we accept them. We love them unconditionally as best that we can. We're very conditional. We forgive them. And we see them as, as people, that they're valued people. They're, Christ loved this person. I should love this person. You begin to do that, you will eradicate relational fear from your relationships. When you're confident of who you are in Christ, when you're confident of God's perfect love in you, that perfect love will drive out fear. And you'll begin to love. Someone who is filled with and confident of God's love, if you go back through those three points, is not afraid of exposure. What's to hide? Christ's love. Is not afraid of disapproval. They know that they're accepted by Christ himself. Here's where the rubber hits the road. When I know that I'm accepted by Christ, I don't need your approval. I got his approval. So when you disapprove of me, I can rise above it. I don't have to get defensive. I don't have to argue back. You got your opinion. You're allowed your opinion. I know whose approval I got. I don't need anybody else's approval. And I'm not afraid of losing control. Because people that have Christ's love know that already they never were in control. Christ is in control. I've got one last verse for you. Then we're going to close it out here. Actually, I have no, one last verse. 1 Corinthians thirteen seven, Love never stops being patient, never stops believing, never stops hoping, never gives up. Love never stops being patient. You want people to be patient with you? Be patient with people. That's how it works. Never stops hoping. Not going to give up on you. You're relationally broken. I'm relationally broken. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm hoping that God is working in you like he's working in me. He's changing me. He's making me better. He's doing the same for you. Never gives up. I won't give up on you. Don't give up on me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for your wonderful, wonderful love. Father, we need to live in your love. We need to get our heads around how you love us. Father, if we're to overcome our relational fears, we have to face up to those fears. We have to bring them to you. Our fears of insecurity, our fears that, that maybe someone's going to walk out on us, our, our fears of, of what's happened in the past happening again, our fear of, of losing control, whatever it might be, Father, we have to face up to those fears and offer them to you. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to your love. Let us see it today. Fill us with your love so that as we are filled with your love, we distribute your love. Father, this is especially important when we're in a relationship with somebody 
who is filled with fear. And it challenges us to love that person. Father, it can only be done through the power of your Holy Spirit and your love in our lives. Father, we thank you for that. I want to lead us in a prayer right now. I don't want to manipulate anyone into praying something. But if you want to know God's love more, just quietly pray this prayer with me. This is my prayer, okay? Dear Lord, I need to know fresh today that you love me, that you are with me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the strength to love the way you love. Soften my heart so that those around me will see you in me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we got a lot of stuff going on through the summer here. We're kind of getting back to normal. You know, the CDC changed the mask laws this week. I'm still going to be cautious. Somebody mentioned to me just now, you know, well, you know, they, they changed the rules. And I thought, well, I'm still going to wear my mask around church. I'm not making anybody else. But I want to make sure that even those who are, who are compromised in any way feel comfortable to come here. I don't want anyone not coming because of my behavior. So I'm going to err on the side of caution there. But I'm not going to pass judgment on anybody. Um, but it's good because we're starting to get back to normal. So let's just keep praying that we get back to normal. So we've got a lot of stuff coming on. July 5th and 9th, we've got youth camp. Deposit is due today. If you've got kids going, pay up your deposit today. Now, we're going to be doing some fundraisers for the youth. It's, we figured out, we had a youth meeting on Thursday. It's going to cost about $2,200 or so, $2,500 maybe, to send all of our youth to camp. We want them to pay that money. But we want to give them opportunity to earn that money so they can go to camp. So we're going to be doing some fundraisers, so be watching out for that. Um, not sure what we're doing right now. We might be doing a car wash bake sale, that kind of thing. But the kids are going to be involved in this. So be watching. So that's coming up July 5th to 9th. May 23rd, we've got a youth hangout, lunch, parents, youth over in the youth building. If you've got kids, be there, invite friends. June 6th, we're having a 101 class. Now, I talked about this last week. I've changed the date. 101 is our welcome to church membership. Now, we've got a lot of new people that have been coming to church. I want to encourage you to come to 101. Now, here's why. If you've been coming for a while and you've been thinking, I like this church. I kind of feel like God has brought me here. And, and each week, I like the messages. I like the people. I like the small groups. That, that This is your church. Then commit to it. Make it your church. 101 is our church membership class. We, we're very specific about membership here. Nobody can teach your kids. Nobody can lead a small group unless they've done our 101 class and understand what we believe and why we believe it. So you know that if you've got kids down there or if you go to a Sunday school class or you go to a small group, they're not going to be teaching something out from left field. 
Because we've gone through this stuff. Here's what we believe. Here's our basic beliefs. Here's why we believe them. Here's how we operate as a church. So June 6, 101, we do it immediately following the service here. Now, if you want to be a part of that, as you're leaving today, grab a card. There's cards in the back of the seat and put on there. I want 101. Put your name and drop it in the offering as you leave. So that's coming up on June 6. July 4th, party on the lawn. I'm praying that July 4th is going to be a healing time in our country. We've been divided, haven't we? We need a really good July 4th to celebrate America. It's the greatest country on the planet, and we need to celebrate this country. So we're going to have a big old party out on the lawn. Hungry Souls is going to cook food. We'll play bocce. We'll do stuff. We'll have the band out there playing, I'm assuming. I'm throwing that at you right now, Randy. It's hard to say no when I do it publicly, isn't it? Invite your friends and you can see the fireworks from here and you don't have to fight all the traffic in the park. So you could be the first ones in. You can enjoy food. You could be the first ones out. So that's July 4th. Invite people for that. And then July 19th through 23, we're having vacation Bible school. Libby is out there. She's at the train station. We still need some volunteers. We're close to being full, right? Yeah, the answer is yes. We need some help. Um, so talk to Libby. We're not going to put anybody in a situation that takes you outside of what God has called you to do. So don't worry about it. But you know what? It's our responsibility to raise our kids to know Jesus, isn't it? We've got a bunch of kids down there, and we're going to invite kids from the neighborhood. So if you can be a part of that, go and talk to Libby, and we'll sign you up. So that's coming up July 19 through 23. So that's our summer activities right now. I'm going to invite you to stand. I want to pray over you. And uh, please be faithful with your offering. You can put your offering there. You can go online and do your offering. You can mail your offering. Thank you all for being with us. Let me pray. Father, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as I've already prayed. Father, I love this verse from Zephaniah 3.17. It says, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is mighty. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Pour out your blessing upon us so that we may be a blessing to all we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.